welcome, friends, to the Creativity, Spirituality, and Making a Book podcast with David Nickturn on the Be Here Now Network. My name is Michael Cammers, your host and David's sometimes sidekick. Uh, so welcome, everyone, and welcome, David. Thank you, Michael. That, friends, was a little track that Michael was working on between us recording podcasts. And it was sweet. So I thought, let's just uh, play ourselves in with that one this time. So thank you for that, Michael. Tasty. We're um, exploring something quite unique, I feel, in this particular podcast and with our, our Dharma Moon platform altogether, which is the intersection of uh, creative expression and spiritual practice. And also at times we're talking about the... Um, everyday life and the business aspect of living as if it was one seamless weave from a happy, healthy person uh, who's living a full life. So that's kind of our um, vision, and it's expressed in my book, Creativity, Spirituality, and Making a Buck, for which the podcast is named. And so we will be at different times, as you know already, if you've been listening to the podcast, exploring creative topics. We've had guests like the great jazz guitar player Julian Lodge on. We've had very successful entrepreneurs on. We've had yoga teachers on. Um, we've had meditation teachers on. We've had well-known authors in, in the space. So we're moving around, but not to make everybody dizzy, but to try to create some kind of weave of these different topics. And um, for those of us who are kind of intrigued by that possibility. So Today, uh, Michael and I are sort of shifting over from our Dharma hats, our Pandita hats, mm -hmm. and putting on our uh, music hats and talking about the creative process. But we're going to try to tie it into the thread and connection of um, Dharma practice. Is there, is there a connection there? What's, what's the uh, fabric? And... We're doing this as, you know, Michael has been a student for quite a while and is one of our assistant directors at Dharma Moon for the training programs, the meditation training programs. But he's also an incredible musician. We kind of met on both frontiers as Dharma nerds and as uh, musicians and producers. And so the thread between those two is something we share in common. It makes a great conversation. And our vision was to have, you know, some Dharma type of events where people practice and sit and study and then maybe as it moves towards evening we have some concerts and maybe some good food and just a, a, a general uh, celebration and feast of the whole of the whole situation so of course some of that got dented a little bit by covid it's harder to gather right now for uh, the live situation but in, in our virtual reality here we're going to try to continue this conversation and this keep this thread alive and then stay tuned when we re when everybody's ready we'll be reappearing in person um, and having, having some fun together. So I want to start with the premise that creativity is actually embedded deeply into the fabric of our being. And my perspective is that life itself is great creativity. Life is creative. Just fundamental existence has um, a big bang quality to it. The universe is, well, you could say playing with itself if you want to. 
turn of phrase there. (laughs) Have to watch out. But uh, anyhow, we know what we mean by that. And um, I think creative people sometimes feel like uh, the best part of what we do is not coming from the portal of trying to be somebody or be something and to identify, create a solid identity for ourselves. There's a lot of dissolving of that and letting the creative energies play through as, as, as it were. So, Michael, what's your experience of that as, 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 as when you're writing or arranging music? Do you feel like you're doing something? Do you feel like you're somebody? It flows. It shifts um, along with my perception and what state I'm in. You know, I think uh, any creative person, if you talk to them, if they would say it's going well, um, they've loosened their grip and uh, the creative energies are just are just flowing through. Um, but there does also seem to be um, some discipline, some work with oneself and state of mind that can go along with that to, um, I often think like setting up the table or setting up the pieces and then letting, letting things arise as they may. Yeah. Michael had a, uh, a live band in, in uh, downtown New York, which a lot of times we go to our Dharma courses and then we all go to his gig Sunday night or Friday night. Um, tell people a little bit about, about that, will you? Where it was and so forth? Yeah, well, since 2002, actually. I've wow. Had a, uh, I know, it's crazy. I was a, quite a young man. You're only 12 years old now. That's impossible. Yeah. Um, we can leave a discussion of the nature of time. <laughs> okay. Of that, but... I've led a uh, what I call a space funk big band since 2002. Uh, it's a large ensemble. It plays groovy, creative music with improvisation and composition. Um, at its largest, it's a 15-piece band. Um, and for the last uh, seven years before the pandemic, I personally and collectively, we were in residency at the McKittrick Hotel, which is the home of the immersive theatrical production Sleep No More. And we were very fortunate to uh, play parties and brunches, as well as having uh, a really unique opportunity to have a a Friday night residency weekly for the last year, maybe year plus, with with a large ensemble playing the music of my choice. Um, What a fruitional um, setting and scenario, and it, it was a lot of fun. Yeah, what a dream, and so much fun to to hang out. Um, so. Uh, there was a quality of composition there, right? There was stuff that was worked out, uh, orchestrated, and then there was freeform things that were sort of lacing in and out. Is that a fair way to to frame it? Yes. So, of course, this is an interesting uh, aspect of creativity is that some of it we actually focus and format and deliberately uh, give it shape and it's repeatable, you know, it's not just like, hey, everybody just do whatever you want, whenever you want. And then it creates a space in which uh, well-trained uh, musicians are able to stretch out beyond that form. Would you say that's fair enough to say? It is. And as a leader, you know, what you just said kind of reminded me of an anecdotal thing that I heard about Louis Armstrong, uh, who in the moment could discern if he was in that state where things could flow well. And obviously, he's one of the greatest improvisers and musicians in, our, in, in American history. He's very important. But I also heard on the nights that he didn't feel like it was really happening, he had through-composed solos that he would play on the songs. Wow. 
so now this th- this reminds me also of um uh you know i used to love when i was a kid the beethoven violin concerto hmm. i love violin concertos and they have become extremely formalized i think a couple of centuries ago the the, the soloist would say i don't know if i'm going to be able to make this jam on the on the, the kind of uh, solo part and so that part became through composed. But as I understand it, in the original form, that was a chance for the violinist to improvise. Yeah, in our in our Western classical tradition, symphonic, uh, there was a rich history of improvisation, which kind of sort of, as you said, got got written out, um, which is interesting. Um, but I, I believe it's it's starting to get woven back in. And there's been a tradition of third stream music in the U.S. Uh, since the mid 20th century, where you know, uh, really interesting combinations of those traditions have, have met and arisen. Like Gunther Schuller and Ornette Coleman. Now I'm dropping lots of names. Uh, now, like if you correlate this with, with the Dharma situation, like when we're teaching, I think there's a similarity, which is the Dharma is very classical. Buddha Dharma is so classical. And the people who have really trained in it very thoroughly, they're really reiterating uh, kind of points. It's composed. It's through composed in a way. Of course, when it was first spoken, it was improvised. That's the intriguing part about it. As far as I can tell, the Buddha was not looking at notes. He was spontaneously orchestrating, and it was perfectly formed. And those sutras, you know, they, they just have a high, high degree of, of form and clarity. But he was just, um, as far as we know, just speaking the truth as he was experiencing it. And it was so... Um, clear that it it, it it was formalized and now people for hundreds of years are just passing those sutras along those exchanges those discourses as as they heard them but we have um the the, the sutras and we have the teachings and then we have the commentaries so over these thousands of years in the buddhist world you have the classical form and then you have generations upon generations of commentary where people are giving their interpretation or even adding stuff. So a lot of the stuff that people study as Buddhist teachings does not date back to the Buddha and um, was sort of, you know, kind of written in the margins as, as time went by. So it, it has a, it has a similar thread. Um, now we, we say, right, Michael, that all dharmas agree at one point. That's a slogan in the Lojang slogans. So when people are studying different things, it's interesting. You could say, well, what is that one point? So let me ask you, all dharmas agree at one point. What would that one point be? Lessening ego. <laughs> Lessening. Uh, <laughs> moving beyond it into compassion. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's still moving. So you're at a very variety of points when you're moving, right? So, mm-hmm. um, yeah. Uh, and this refers back to our last podcast, uh, or one of the recent ones about where you're getting you know, where are you getting to? So um, the, the one point, of course, goes into the category in in the Buddhist teachings of pith instructions, pith instructions, where a great teacher or a Buddha can, in, in a simple, even gesture, even without words, indicate the kind of complete transmission of the ultimate truth of the situation. So, and some of them are very simple that we've heard, you know, um, Dilgo Kensi Rinpoche, famous one, drew one of the students to an ear-whispered um, instruction and just whispered, be kind to everyone. 
um, famously Maharaji, you know, uh, Neem Karoli Baba, our, our friends in the Bhakti world, told Ramdas, um, <clears throat> you know, love everybody and tell the truth. Oh, and of course, Ramdas, who was the in this in the, the role of um, the student, is saying, but but uh, Maharaji, the truth is, I don't love everybody. So that's beyond the pith instructions there. You can pick it up and go, well, I'll just do that. But in trying to swallow it, it's like somebody has put a whole ice cube in your mouth <laughs> and you can't really swallow it. So you have to let it melt a little bit and then take little swallows, which is called the path on the journey, right? So it's true, as far as I can tell, that a Buddha or a highly realized person could put the entire, they call it putting the Buddha in the palm of your hand. They could put the entire all dharmas agree at one point and transmit it in one shot to a person, but you wouldn't have a place to put it necessarily. So the whole time we're practicing, we're building up our capacity to uh, uh, ingest or digest pieces of, of, of that kind of simple truth. Um, so music's like that too, because there's, and I wonder what you think of this, Mike, the um, taria, um, the hold the fermata in music and the music goes and it goes and there's open space for just a moment. That's such, so transmissional from a Buddhist point of view. It's, uh, it's really uh, an amazing moment that I don't think is differentiable whether you're presenting it as in a Dharma context or in a, in a music context. What do you think? It's a beautiful point. Yeah. Um, and as a performer, as an improviser, and as a meditator, right? Um, let's start from as a meditator. You are developing a relationship with space. You are seeing, I, I see my own fear of space, right? Mm -hmm. So my ability to um, sit in that discomfort and fear of space allows me to communicate better because I don't feel like I need to fill it all in, <laughs> right? And as a performer, as mm. somebody working the microphone in front of the band, through my Dharma practice, I'm cultivating the ability to be able to sit in my own discomfort and leave space, as opposed to bypassing it with aggression and projecting aggression. And so in that space, maybe there's not aggression. <laughs> oh, that's interesting. Absence of aggression, which is one of the definitions of Dharma you could use, actually. The absence of aggression. And they say of all the, the three root kleshas, you know, the aggression and uh, grasping and ignorance, Trungpa Rinpoche used to say that aggression is the most adharmic of the three because it destroys in one minute, it can destroy so much um, goodness that has been exposed and cultivated. So that's why ahimsa or nonviolence or non-aggression is kind of considered the ground of all these practices, fundamentally uh, not being aggressive, um, not pushing. Um, and our habit, of course, is aggression is related to survival. We're used to thinking you have to be aggressive to survive. And so at the same time as you're giving up aggression, you are giving up your survival in a way. You're, you're letting go of the idea, I, you know, what is it, Gloria Gaynor? I, I will survive, I must survive. <laughs> you know, that would not be exactly the Buddhist uh, version of the song, you know. I, I surrender. Um, 
you know, would be probably closer to it. But what about the enlightened aspect of, of aggression and survival? Is there any, is there any good part to it? Well, I, I think, um, I'm just, I'm going to speak more from my musician seat. I think a lot of what music was for me as a, a younger man moving through my experience without going down a rabbit hole. Um, there's a transformational, transmutational uh, quality, uh, which is one of the things I, that drew me to it. Um, taking aggression, anger, heartbreak, trauma, uh, the challenging things in life and transmuting it into whatever it transmutes into a beautiful piece of music you can share with somebody an energy a construct that you can build community with as far as compositions with a band but also i mean from a dharmic perspective anger has a lot of energy and clarity in it if we can hold our seat right so um those are kind of things i'm exploring now in addition to just sort of getting in front of people and you know, really pushing a lot of loud sound at them aggressively. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's interesting um, that as we're talking about this, I really am tuning into the a how could you give transmission of the awakened state of mind by playing music, like intentionally point to that space which is um, uh, open, empty. It's easy to get with the flow and the kind of gracefulness of it and the communication. But I thought of a couple of musical phrases, like we started with fermata, right? And the teria, like a hold. You just go, uh, and then I thought of a sforzando, right? Which is like, mm. you know, and then the, the, the audience is like, ah, what just happened? I'm, I'm, there's no more music here for a second. And then the music picks up. So maybe we could write a piece with sforzandos in it. And then five minute holds with no instruction for the audience. <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's kind of direct and wrathful in a way, because yeah. like, like in also in a previous discussion, you're talking about the woodpecker, right? Like the phenomenal yeah. world kind of waking you up because uh, a lot of music we listen to caters to our expectations and it's very pleasant, but there's mm. more to art than some, than traditional uh, consensus of beauty. Right. So, there is a lot of music that's been written that shakes you, you know, whether mm. like, I mean, I think of pieces like Verez's Amerique's, these large blocks of sound and then space. Mm -hmm. wow. uh -huh. John Cage's, what is it, four minutes, 33 seconds, right? Yeah. That piece, the pianist comes out, he lifts the, um, you know, the top of the piano, he exposes the keys and he or she or whatever gender person, excuse me, and just sits at the piano for four minutes and 33 seconds and then turns the lid down. <laughs> and gets paid double scale for it. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I could do that one. I don't even need to practice. Yeah, leaving the question open is, that would they even know how to play the piano? It's, it's interesting The uh, what's the requirement there. So, um, you know, According to what we know about the tradition we've inherited, as, as um, we've inherited two traditions, you and I, which is one is a very long musical tradition, which is extremely um, full of uh, meaning and content and stylization and approach towards um, sound and space. And we've also been studying Buddhism, which is 2,500 years old, 
probably goes back, you know, we say this is just the fourth Buddha in a, a cycle of a thousand Buddhas, the Shakyamuni Buddha. So if you can expand your sense of space and time, um, that these kind of conversations have been going on for longer than we could imagine. That what it what ended up happening is the Buddha used any skillful means possible, as far as we understand it, to communicate the truth of the situation, including like showing a woman at a well how to practice mindfulness. Here's just lift up one hand, lift up the other hand, lift up the other hand. And so what was being communicated um, could be adapted in the form that it's being presented so that it's clear to the person who's receiving the communication. Now, if you look at the where our version of Buddhism comes from, the Tibetan uh, Buddhist tradition, and through Trungpa Rinpoche and then previous lineage holders for, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years in Tibet, it really came from India. It's Mother India. They're not kidding when they say Mother India. Uh, it, gave, it spawned all these traditions, really, with the possible exception of some China. So India and China. Now, India... And other places. I don't mean to, you know, there's the shamanic traditions and so forth and um, uh, other cultures. But these are two major strands. And in India, you know, a bit after the time the Buddha was was teaching, uh, there were these yogis, these called the Mahasiddhas, you know, 84 Mahasiddhas. How many there were, nobody, I think, really could know. Um, but they're considered realized beings who are manifesting the world in basically a hidden way. You know, in other words, nobody's saying this is the third karmapa or the sixth, this it's just the guy fixing your shoes. You take your you take your boots in and the nail is loose and that person's tapping on the nail. And that could be a, a Mahasiddha, you don't know. So that those were the really uh uh, the actual quality of experience and realization is expressed in the Mahasiddhas. And then there's a connection between that lineage and the beginnings of the tantric monastic Buddhist tradition. As you know, it goes back to, you know, uh, maybe 400 AD to seven or 800 AD. And then it gets kicked into a monastic tradition by Naropa, who's a, a student of a, a Mahasiddha named Tilopa. And then Naropa, um, passes it on to Marpa, who's a Tibetan. So now, now you're in Tibet. Um, uh, this is just one lineage. And then Marpa passed it on to a yogi named Milarepa, who was, you know, a, a cave yogi, basically. Now, Milarepa's main student is Gampopa, who is uh, a, a physician, uh, but also a monk. From there on, really, 90% of the Araxis point, maybe more, to the tantric tradition of India, <clears throat> the Buddhist tantric tradition, is through the monastic tradition of Tibet. A, a little bit leaked into other places, but that's that's really how, that's what you and I are doing sitting here. That's what we're the heir to. So the Mahasiddhas don't have that kind of formal uh, manifestation, but you can see how formalized the whole presentation got in the monastic world. And now I'm going to liken those to the monastic tradition is like classical music, and the Mahasiddhas are like jazz. <laughs> They're both highly disciplined, highly trained, um, 
but the manifestation of a of a of a, a siddha or a mahasiddha can be anything take place in any form could be a great could be a great musician for sure i mean let's just keep going with that you know i mean um I'm, I know that you can attest, and I'm sure many of the listeners, if not all of them, can attest to music that they heard that just opened their heart and mind. Mm, mm, mm. And uh, I mean, John Coltrane. Mm. I listened to John Coltrane. I used to listen to, before I was a non-theist, I used to listen to John Coltrane and be like, I, it's like hearing God. I hear, mm. I hear whatever it is coming through. You know, we would say like the nature of awakened mind or bodhicitta. That's somebody who maybe he may not be a, a fully realized like um, a Mahasiddha, but uh, such a strong intention of compassion and uplifting humanity through the vehicle of music making, you know? Uh, ironically, you know, Michael, we're, we're a generation apart, uh, maybe a generation and a half even, but John Coltrane was a very significant influence for me and i'm going to go back to being maybe in college columbia college and i was maybe 17 18 years old and hearing a love supreme that record a love supreme and hearing that record and going whatever that is i'll have a, a, a big serving of that and at the very same time i was tuning into both um Asian, several varieties of Asian culture, particularly like listening to music like Japanese gagaku music, imperial court music from Japan and Koto, and also looking at samurai movies and, and gung fu movies. So uh, I, I somehow that was part of the same stream as the, it, it, it being turned on to the Asian culture and then also being turned on to um, the, the, what had evolved as the sort of depth of the Western jazz experience, which was moving towards, ironically, moving towards a kind of cosmic perspective. Uh, you know, they, they, and tell me what you think of this, because the jazz musicians, as I can see, were just geniuses, a lot of these people. They were Beethoven's, and they didn't have a place in the society where they can just go like, you know, so they just played pop tunes <laughs> because people would pay for that. And you just go, well, I'm going to just blow it out a little bit here. And some of that early Coltrane stuff, you know, is uh, him playing, uh, you know, standards and stuff like that. But it still is sort of heading towards that kind of cosmic vein. And then it's just the hell with the form and the heck with this culture. I'm just going to blow it out. Um, so what do you think about, um, is there some connection between jazz and what we think of as a sort of Buddhist perspective? Is, is there something there that um, is a natural marriage of some kind? Yeah, that's a really rich field. I mean, when you're talking about Coltrane, I mean, let's talk about um, his second wife, Alice Coltrane. If, if, you, if, if our listeners aren't familiar, she's, I believe, Flying Lotus's like aunt or great aunt, maybe. And... Um, she had a, a full-on spiritual practice. She lived in ashrams. She wasn't Buddhist, more Hindu. Lots of like like jazz with synthesizers. That's like devotional music to like Indian deities, and it's like everything is right there, you know. Um, and then there's a lot of great jazz practitioners uh, that are in the chanting lineage, which is out of my uh, zone of knowledge. But like Herbie Hancock, uh, I believe Wayne Shorter. 
Um, I was I was performing at a jazz festival in 2004 with my band. I was just a little guy, and um, Wayne Shorter's drummer Brian Blade and his bass player Michael Patitucci came over, and they were so kind to us. Mm. They it w- and and their Buddhist practitioner is in this lineage, um, which I apologize I, I don't know the name of, but I was I can still feel their kindness to this day. And we talk about inspiration and aspiration and the kind of person who can uh, be an artist on that level and still take interest on like the snot-nosed college kids who are like doing the side stage set. And like that was like a real bodhicitta kind of moment. Hmm. Uh, It's a good place to hit the pause button, Mike. I mean, there's such a depth here we can go into, but I think, you know, what we're really talking about is trying to find the thread through uh, from our creative expression and joy and quest to, to find our own particular voice in this world and uh, not looking at our Dharma spiritual practice as a way of repressing or demolishing that, but enhancing and opening that. Uh, and and that's really what Dharma Moon, our community, is about. That's what um, that's what this whole process is about. And uh, it's such a joy to, to to share those those things with you. It's been very rare in my life. I've had two different worlds a lot of the time. I've gone back and forth. So Dharma Moon is trying to bring together people like who who um, are intrigued by the, the the continuity and the thread. We say it's all one thread. So thanks, Mike. We'll be continuing on. So um, thank you all for listening. Thank you, David. And thank you, everyone. Be well. Peter Piper picked a peck of pickled peppers. A peck of pickled peppers. Peter Piper picked. If Peter Piper picked a peck of pickled peppers, where's the peck of pickled peppers Peter Piper picked? Oh, hello there. You caught me in the middle of my vocal warm-up. I tried a couple takes of this earlier, and I've just been stepping all over my words. And as we discussed a little bit there in that episode, spontaneous, extemporaneous communication done skillfully takes a ground of discipline, which I don't have when it comes to uh, my enunciation. So that's probably enough of that. David... And everyone at Dharma Moon and Be Here Now would like to thank you for watching this episode of David's View. We sincerely hope that you enjoyed watching and listening as much as we enjoyed making it. I know personally this was a pretty meaningful conversation uh, to have with David, getting to talk about you know John Coltrane and Maharaji all in the in the same discussion was pretty fun. So hopefully it's beneficial for you to uh, to listen to. So, with that being said, if you would like to see more of David's views or creativity, spirituality, making a buck, go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash David, and um, you can find all of the amazing content on the Be Here Now Network at the website, and we encourage you to go there. If you would like to submit a question for David and I to talk about, on David's view, feel free to uh, put something in the comments on one of these YouTube videos. Um, 
We don't see all the comments, um, but you could also send an email to Michael K at dharmamoon.com and I will field that. So thanks again. We'd like to thank everybody for watching. That's probably like the 10th time I've thanked everybody for watching. So thank you for listening to me. Thank you this long. And if you'd listened this long, we have a little Easter egg at the end of the episode here. This is a rejected version of a David's View theme song that I produced. Um, When the muse calls, you listen, and I go all the way. And sometimes the results are kind of wacky and often not really usable in any uh, professional arena, hence it being an outtake here. So enjoy this outtake of the David's View theme song, and may you be safe, healthy, happy, and at ease. All the best. Welcome to you.